almost invariably they try and get away. So Nick's experience is a typical experience of coming across a leopard at short distance. All you see is a blur of spots and colour, gone. I think they're firmly established in the food chain. They're obviously breeding. I was 12 when I first saw uh, the Black Panther and those cats are still reported in the same area now. They're here to stay. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter and thanks for joining me. And welcome to episode 106 of Big Cat Conversations. With this edition, we are again in Scotland. Last time we were in the northeast in Caithness, but this time we're about 300 miles or more to the southwest because we're hearing about events in Argyll. Our guest is Janet, who has recently started investigating in her local area in the southern part of Argyll, and that follows a fair bit of big cat activity she's experienced, especially in the past year. So we're about to hear all about that. We're recording this one in mid-January, and there's a cold, wintry spell underway across Britain. So, hi Janet, thanks for coming on the show, and how's the weather with you? Hello Rick, thank you for inviting me. It's actually really cold. Last night we were down to minus seven, and we haven't risen above zero all day. Okay. We've been about one degrees here in Gloucestershire daytime, and we went down to about minus five, actually, nighttime. As soon as I opened the door for Zaki, my black cat, in the sort of outhouse bit of the house, he wanted to come straight in because he didn't like the cold. <laughs> Even though he's a tough stray cat that's uh, moved in a bit. The moment um, cats sit in a main coon, so if he starts vocalising, that's why. He won't actually go out of the door in this weather. <laughs> so he's a big chap. Is quite large. Lovely cats, aren't they? But um, cats are challenging things to look after sometimes. He is challenging because he's very, very intelligent. Is he clever in what he predates or is he softer and just has his own supplied food? A mixture of both. <laughs> A bit like mine, yeah. Good stuff. Okay, set the scene for us, for those of us who don't know the Argyle landscape. I know it's a huge region from, say, Mull of Kintyre up to Oban on the sort of west and west of Glasgow. And you're in the southern bit. What's the landscape predominantly like near you? Quite hilly, very rural, quite remote, and with some very challenging terrain. Much of it not accessible to the public. It's a mixture of some farmland, some shore, lots of hills and various different terrains. And when you say shore, I mean, that's because Argyle's full of lakes and waterside environments, whether it's on the coast or sort of inland lakes and lochs. Any cats in the area have got lots of waterside environments, which I suspect they'll navigate round and find plenty of pickings around. That's right, and lots of river courses and streams as well with fresh water. And my notes say that your area has got 50 years' worth of sightings and reports of all the main types of cats that we're used to on this podcast, so all the three big ones, and wild cats. Although you're not in an area of officially recognised pure Scottish wild cats, are you? Officially, no, but we receive reports of dead one locally, and I have actually seen a wildcat living close to me. And we've received messages saying that people have got video wildcats. So I do think they're in the area, they're just not documented. How would you know if they were pure? It's impossible to know if they're pure. Usually going on the markers by the markings on them, the expression on the face... The ones I've seen have always had the angry expression. And they're bigger than a domestic. Not as big as a big cat, obviously, but still larger than a domestic. They're obviously towards being purer, if you've seen those kinds of diagnostic characteristics on them. Yes. Well, we're going to play out. The outro music is going to be Dance of the Wildcat. So uh, <laughs> very good that you've got the local indigenous cat. And let's hope you have got some pure ones. 
Obviously, it's a difficult situation with uh, the decline of the population, particularly in its main strongholds. So we're going to talk about five different local incidents or Scottish incidents. I think one of them is in Aberdeenshire, but mainly local incidents that happened to you all last year, 2023. But first of all, we're going to hear about something which happened when you lived in Greece uh, a few years back. So can you start off with that one then, please? That's correct, Rick. It was 2010. I lived in Greece, actually, for 24 years. But one afternoon, my husband was driving us to work through a rural area when the agricultural vehicle in front of us swerved and hit something in the road, then got out of the vehicle and dragged something to the side of the road. He drove off, and we thought it might have been someone's dog. So we stopped our car, and when I got to the side of the road, it was a fully grown lynx. It was dead, but still warm to the touch. And strangely, it was dead, but almost unmarked. I was really upset that such a beautiful creature could be wiped out just in seconds by someone's actions. He deliberately swerved to hit it, did he, do you think? I believe he deliberately swerved to hit the cat. How callous and rotten. Absolutely. We don't hear much about Eurasian lynx in Greece, and that's because it's assumed that they're actually extinct largely, or just clinging on and maybe functionally extinct. And of course, it's the Balkan subspecies of the Eurasian lynx. That's correct. And so that was 2010, so that was a fair few years ago. So even then, he was killing a very rare indigenous mammal. Yes, it it was actually already protected as a critically endangered species in Greece from hunters, and that had been enforced since 1939, so a long time. He presumably knew what he was doing, and his attitude was just to clear it out, basically. I assumed as a farmer that it maybe had livestock that had disappeared or a history with them. He had an attitude against it. Yep. It's very sad, but it does show you that attitudes and cultures do change. And no matter what we might feel personally, it's difficult to influence people based on local circumstances or whatever. That's correct. Living in Greece at the time, were you aware of links? Was there much awareness of links? I wasn't aware of lynx as a local cat, no. No, so that was a surprise that made you look it up, perhaps, was it? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Right, well, let's get back to local events in Scotland. Now, before last year, when all of this sort of kicked off for you, how aware of big cats were you at the time? I'd always followed stories in the press and magazines and on the news about big cats. I especially remember them um, in the 1970s and 80s being reported. There seemed to be a lot of reports on television and in the newspapers about big cats. So I'd always had a sort of background interest. And then it suddenly came to you as a real local issue because you heard something locally last March. Is that right? That's right. Much to my surprise, I went out onto the decking of my home to pick something up and I heard a very loud very angry big cat roaring it seemed pretty close to me and the roars were getting louder it seemed directional it seemed to be coming from the woodland below the sheep field which is about 200 yards from me and the roaring continued and I decided I wasn't safe on the decking run inside and lock the doors. I'm I'm not quite sure what that good that would do me, but it was still roaring um, when I was inside and my blood had run cold. It was the most terrifying thing I'd ever heard. I contacted Paul McDonald to report the vocalization and found a sound file that was similar to the one that I'd heard on YouTube and sent it to Paul. He said he thought it was a big cat that I'd heard. Yeah, we can put that one on the website, actually, to go with this edition, I think. Yes. When it started, 
back of your property and you'd never heard anything like this, but did you instantly think that it was a large cat, a big predator like a large cat? I did. It, it reminded me of noises that I heard at the zoo. I couldn't give any other reason for such a loud, such a terrifying noise so close to me as, as well. And unexpectedly, I live in an area that most of the time is absolutely silent. I live in a, a remote place, a rural place, and it totally shook me up. What do you think prompted it? What do you think this individual animal was doing? Was it communicating to another one? Was it warning something? Was it angry at something? At the time, I thought it was very angry at something. And it did, did strike me that it could be angry at me. But it sounded very angry at something. It did strike me later that maybe the animal was in pain. Okay. How far away was it? It was about 200 yards away. Were you aware at that time there had been a history of big cat sightings in the area or did that become knowledge to you afterwards? That became knowledge to me afterwards when I contacted Paul. I looked up if there were any groups for big cat sightings in Scotland and found this one. I actually asked on the open group if they recorded vocalisations because I thought it might be only sightings of cats that were recorded. Paul got in touch with me and asked me to send him all the details so that it could be recorded. How long did it last for, the noise? I would say about seven minutes. It was quite a long time. Did you think to get your phone out onto video so you could have picked it up and recorded it? the noise? Unfortunately, I had quite an old phone, which comes in at, at a further sighting, actually. And I couldn't record sound, I couldn't record video. It's just a basic phone, really. It could have been very useful. It would have, it would have picked it up, presumably, because it was loud enough, was it? Oh, absolutely, yes. Did you see your cat react to it? Was there any other reaction from nature or pets or horses or anything that you could detect at the time? I was the only person up here, but I did notice that the crows in the tree were going crazy. They'd moved from the field towards the tree, which is at the bottom of my garden. They picked it up. I didn't have a pet then. You've never heard it since? I've never heard it since, and I've, I never heard it before that time. Did it influence you the next few days? Did you think, you've got to be careful going out in that direction or something? I didn't actually go out for a few days. Yeah. I was busy reading the Scottish Big Cat Research Group. I was in touch with Paul and asking him all kinds of questions. I told Paul about my past as a professional photographer and researcher and he invited me to join the team of the Scottish Big Cat Research Team. Okay, and that is what then led to the second incident we're about to hear about. Following up a report in the region and finding prints, is that the gist of it? But you can tell us obviously the detail. That's right. About a month later, I was investigating a local sighting of a big black cat, which was seen in a field close to Woodland. Although I was still a, very much a novice at tracking, um, I noticed a paw print in the mud that was differently shaved from the other dog prints I'd seen. So I sent a photo, managed to send a simple photo to Paul, and he asked me to take more photos with something next to it to give scale for the size of it. The only thing I had on me was my key, car keys and fob. It was identified as a double register leopard paw print, much to my surprise. And due to the scaling being possible, the leopard was estimated at being four foot six long in the body without the tail. Based on the footprint size? Based on the footprint size and the formula Paul used to work out the length of the body. And the next day I decided to go back to have another look and I found a partial paw print in the same area. 
Could we put those on the website for this edition? Yeah, I'll I'll get one out of my archives. Good stuff. Now, did that tally with what you were meant to be investigating? Were you in the area where the, there was a sighting and so the follow-up confirmed as far as possible what the sighting might have been? Yes, I, I was in the woods adjacent to the field where the cat was seen. It was seen by two witnesses. They said they often saw deer and rabbits and other things in the field. So they were used to see, seeing the roe deer. But on this particular day, they saw a big black cat, which was sitting in the field, looking up the field towards something. And then after observing it for a few minutes, the cat decided to walk back into the woodland. They said a big black cat. And they were used to seeing the deer, so they had some kind of idea of size comparison. How close to you was it, Janet, that one? It's about two miles away. Has there been any further history of reports there or or activity there that's been sensed or seen? There have been more reports of sightings in the general area. They were pleased that you found prints, presumably, because it sort of validated what they were saying. Well, I tried to get back in touch with them so that we could do a scaling exercise in the field and get more details of the sighting. But unfortunately, they decided not to answer again. So I was unable to tell them that the prints had been found. Yeah, well, they just didn't get back to your messages. No, no. That does happen. It is interesting because you think, well, people have gone to the bother to report something in detail and seem to be pleased that something's followed up and then they just drop it and sometimes wonder what that's all about. I think sometimes people get to think, well, hang on, this is being taken very seriously and proper follow-up, rigorous investigations being done. I don't know where this might lead to. When people think it through, they tend to fall away when the serious investigation starts for whatever reason. That's right. I think some people don't want to be known in public as having seen a big black cat. Yeah, and they just don't know where the investigations might lead to and the consequences, so they just keep a low profile afterwards. That's right. So next incident was when you were having a break on holiday over in the east in Aberdeenshire, is that right? That's correct. I decided to have a break from the field work, which can be really gruelling sometimes, especially in bad weather. So I booked for, to go on an organised coach trip to Aberdeenshire. And on the first morning at breakfast, two ladies on my breakfast table were complaining nonstop about an animal being outside their bedroom on the ground floor and making horrible noises from the gorse bushes outside their window before daybreak. It intrigued me all day. So the next morning, I decided to get up before daylight to go and investigate. I had no equipment with me, only a very, very basic phone. Went to the gorse bushes, couldn't see or hear anything. As the sun rose, I decided to walk behind the hotel along the riverbank and get some fresh air. As I was walking along the riverbank, I looked over towards the golf course and I could see as the sun was rising, a big black shape sat in a dip on the golf course directly opposite me. I stood for a good couple of minutes trying to convince myself that it wasn't a big black cat that I was seeing on holiday. But as I kept on looking at the cat, it suddenly raised its leg and started cleaning itself. I tried to call Paul, but got his voicemail. So I left a very excited message saying I was still watching the cat while I was sending the message. I watched the cat for over five minutes. It was a very long sighting. The cat looked very relaxed and comfortable as though it was just cleaning up and relaxing after a meal. Paul later on called in the local team to investigate. 
But I couldn't believe that I'd actually gone on holiday to get away from the field work <laughs> and seen a big black cat on the first day away. And you had a cronky old phone that couldn't record it. That couldn't record it. And it was very frustrating not being able to record it, but having such a distinctive sighting of it. Yeah. What sort of distance away was it? It was directly opposite. I would think about 150 yards, just guessing it was over the river. Was it aware of your presence? No. So you didn't have binoculars, you didn't have a phone that could zoom in, but you could see it clearly enough. Yeah, I didn't even have my professional camera with me. So had you had a zoom lens and the elite camera kit that you possess, you would have got perfect footage, would you? I would have. I've got a Nikon P900, which has got a fabulous digital zoom lens. And you can use the zoom lens either on stills on consecutive frames, or you can use it on video as well on the maximum zoom. Well, how frustrating. <laughs> Very. How did you judge the scale? I judged it actually because he was close to the bunker with the marked pole for the golf course. But the cat was actually sat in the dip. I went back the next day to see if I could see anything again, but there was nothing. But I did notice that the stags and the deer were playing around the bunker and the dip. Yeah, plenty of deer and presumably rabbits on a golf course like that as well. I would imagine, yeah. So when you followed this up and heard the lady's conversation, were you suspicious that it was possibly a cat? My first thought actually was possibly a wildcat, with it being up in the highlands and everything. I've since learned that wildcats are mostly silent most of the time. But I didn't know that at the time. But it did intrigue me enough to go and investigate with them saying about it making the noises before daylight. Did they have a, an inkling as to what animal it was? They had absolutely no idea. But they did know I was part of the research team. But they were convinced that I investigated wildcats and not big cats. What did you think the behaviour was? When they talked about the, the vocalisation and the noise and the disturbance, what did you guess, if it had been a cat, what they were describing in terms of behaviour? I did wonder if they were hearing mating calls. You then reported back to them what you'd seen that morning, did you? No, I didn't actually. I kept it quiet because I knew Paul was going to send in the investigation team and I didn't want to arouse any suspicion with the hotel and people being frightened, so I kept it quiet. So those two ladies never knew what you saw afterwards? No. <laughs> no, fair enough. That's a tactical judgment you made. I can quite understand that. It sounds very frustrating that you had a great sighting and you just didn't have your normal photography equipment available. That's right. How did that influence you, having a good visual sighting like that after the previous events? Did it cap it off, really, that you'd heard a vocalisation, you'd seen prints, and then you saw the real thing? Yeah, it did sort of, but it made me absolutely desperate to get decent footage of a big cat. So now I always carry the camera in the car, ready for action. I bought myself some trail cameras, good ones, and a thermal scope. Which we'll hear about in a, in a minute in, in what follows. That's right. I realised quickly that I seem to be far less likely to see them when I'm actually out doing field work looking for them than when I am generally travelling or even on holiday. The sightings usually come as a surprise. Random events, yeah. Yeah, absolutely random. Um, what I've decided now is to try and be prepared all the time. It's the same with the paw prints, actually. For a long time, I didn't know how to cast a paw print. And I missed the opportunity of casting the leopard prints I found that I photographed because I didn't know how to do it. So now I carry 
a casting kit in the car, so it's always with me. It's extra clobber and space, isn't it? But again, it's a lovely thing to do if you can if you get the chance. That's right. My backpack is really heavy. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> if we're serious about it, you've got to be disciplined and have the relevant kit. Well, that's right, because if you leave something out to save on the way, you can be sure that's the one item that you need on that day. I mean, I find sometimes I'm with fellow investigators and between us, we've got a good range of tools and kit and equipment. But you're spreading the load, basically, and, and different people have got different fortes and different skills and different techniques. So they've got the kit that suits what they like doing. So it's good if you go out with other people and you sort of pool the resources that way. That's right. But the problem is I tend to work alone because although there's another researcher in the area locally, we've got such a huge area and difficult terrain to cover. It's impossible to go out together almost to cover the area. OK, well, we'll hear about that a bit later on. OK. So there's one more key sighting that we're going to hear about now which again all of this is last year it all happened last year isn't it it's um incredible concentration of events yes one day i was going shopping and i was driving along the military road when a big black cat ran across the road some distance from me it was long and slender with a long tail black pitch black but I think it seemed more slender because of the speed it was traveling. It actually cleared a low barrier on both sides of the road, which is quite wide, in three seconds. I know it was three seconds because I actually got a fast black streak on my dash cam in the distance, and that was the car running across the carriageway in the distance. I only got a black streak because of the poor quality of my dash cam and the fact that it is such a panoramic view of the road. Since then, I've invested money in a dash cam with ultra high definition, movement detection and night vision. So I've learned my lesson from that one as well. I think if you're going to buy a dash cam, you may as well spend a little bit extra and make sure it is sufficient quality. What I would emphasise, and with trail cameras in particular, it's low light and illumination at night that's important because, OK, you might get daytime footage, which is great, but you're more likely to get nighttime footage or low light footage. And then you need the cameras to be able to work well. And some trail cameras now, even affordable ones, do have longer illumination ranges. And I think those are the ones that are going to pick these things up and, and get the clearer nighttime footage that we need. Yes, I agree with you. And another thing I've found is that I prefer the ones with an internal battery. I usually use the Seomur one with a solar panel on top. And I found the battery just lasts for months. And even in underneath the trees, there's enough sunlight getting through to keep the battery charged. I wouldn't be able to use the solar-powered topped ones because you can't camouflage them so easily. They're, they're a bigger, chunkier thing. But, of course, perhaps where you are, there's far less people about to potentially see one and steal one, whereas mine have to be really well camouflaged because there's nearly always people about or potentially people about. Even on private land, I've had them stolen on private land from people obviously trespassing. Yeah, I've never had mine stolen. I, I did have a little terrier try to steal it the first time I put it out from the tree. Uh. I decided to try bait, so put some smoked mackerel down in front of the camera. It was by a watering hole, so I put the camera to low level to try and get a big cat drinking was the idea. And what happened was the terrier ran up on the video, ate all the mackerel, it peed on the new camera, and then tried to steal it from the tree. Uh. So I had a wonderful wonderful video of this little terrier trying to steal the camera i think dogs can be an issue because if you draw dogs to the cameras you might draw their owners as well who then see the camera 
that's why I tend to use lures rather than the sort of smelly meat bait because I think although yeah. you know, that could draw a cat in I mean it's more likely to draw a fox or a dog in in the first place there's far more foxes and dogs about so although I don't think my lures are going to draw a cat in from a distance if a cat's around locally they might smell the lures the catnip or the the um the perfume or the cologne I usually have my cameras in remote places try to put them away from public footpaths but I do disguise them I usually pick ferns or leaves from the nearby trees and disguise the camera with that, making sure it's not in front of the lens. That is a risk, though. If one of the fronds of the leaf blows or gets dislodged in front of the lens, it's frustrating, especially the nighttime ones, because you get the light bouncing back. That's right. Um, well, can we go back to this one on the road that you got the blurred dash cam footage of? So tell us a bit more about it. What do you think was happening? Was it a big black leopard type thing, do you think? And it was sort of dashing across the track? It looked like the right shape for a big black leopard. I judged it at at least four feet long, taking into account the distance, because I was looking at it, of course. The dash cam was taking the video separately because I was still driving towards it. I'm not allowed to stop my car on that road, so I couldn't get out and investigate or look for markings or anything else. It was just the dash cam. But I think it looked leaner than I thought because of it being streamlined with being so fast. I don't recall seeing anything ever moving that fast. It was totally shocking because I wasn't expecting it. What time of day was it? It was morning, about half past eight. So good enough light. Yeah. What do you think it was doing? Do you think it heard the vibration of the vehicle or the engine noise and was running off, or do you think it just it was coincidentally running across the track? I think it was running from one piece of woodland to the other, and at t certain times of the day it's quite a busy road. Okay. Nothing you could do, really, because you couldn't set trail cameras up there because it's uh, you'd need very special permission and you wouldn't get it, presumably. Presumably, no. They won't even give information under the Freedom of Information Act, so no chance with trail cameras. You're not allowed to fly drones there or anything. No, OK. By the way, on that one, did you see a tail? Yes, long and straight behind it. So everything about it suggested it was the real thing. Yes. So let's reflect on all of these happenings last year then. You know, you'd gone to having no experiences of these cats and then suddenly a whole host of them, all in concentrated time, and all black ones, all the sort of black leopard type ones. How did all of that make you feel? I think shocked and privileged at the same time. To think that they not only exist, but are close to me, and sort of I've moved into their territory, it's a wonderful thought. I just hope that nothing happens to the big cats over time with all the media interest and publicity. That's why I'm pleased that locations are kept secret. Mind you, if we have difficulty catching up with them and filming them, and it's going to be difficult for anybody else who's got ill intent. Not always. I think some people just have the opportunity and they take it, but they haven't been patiently waiting for months. I think it's very rare instances. I do think a few of them get bumped off, and people have different attitudes about that, but I don't think it can affect the overall population very much if just the odd few get taken out. I've heard of a few taken out by hunters and farmers. What do you think has happened? They've just sort of shoveled them away and kept quiet about it? Yeah, I think they just silently dispose of them. In terms of your information on that, through the grapevine or...? Mostly through the grapevine. And sometimes when I've done the public relations stall with Paul at events, we hear stories from people who... Nowhere cats have been shot and buried by farmers. Yeah, it's going to happen sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, and, and people don't want to sort of yeah. face the consequences or, or know it's controversial and 
It influences you because you now want to investigate and follow up and get paw prints and evidence and footage, I guess. So it, it is a very key influence on your life now, is it? That's right. I don't only follow up sightings. I regularly visit hotspots and past areas to just do surveillance, look for tracks. I take the thermal scope out, usually the hour before dawn and the hour afterwards and sort of keep an ongoing lookout. But since I got injured this year, I've decided to do less tracking because of the terrain and my limited mobility at the moment and concentrate on the trail cameras and photographic evidence. Because I photograph wildlife, wildlife and landscapes, I often travel to remote areas and woodland areas and national parks. And while I'm there taking the photographs, I am always looking for evidence. And I think after a while of being a researcher, you just do it naturally. You start looking up trees and have a quick look around the fields if you're parked or whatever. It makes you much more vigilant and observant. Yeah, so you were lucky that you could combine it with things, relevant activities and travel that you were doing anyway. So you could just link it up with that and it's another aspect of that. That's right. And if people are used to seeing me out as a wildlife photographer, they don't immediately think I'm looking in that area for big cats. And most wildlife is very tricky and challenging to photograph because it's much more stealthy and rare chances to snap it. So you're probably used to being patient and being highly observant anyway, are you? Very patient because I specialise in birds of prey. Oh, wow. Okay. Which are not only fast, they're also very elusive. Yeah. Do you bump into other wildlife photographers and other landscape photographers and talk about big cats ever? Usually, no. If I bump into other photographers, the talk is usually about the wildlife. Is it something that you're happy to raise with people, or is it a topic that you think best to keep low-key, or depends on who you're talking to? It depends on circumstances. If it's general conversation, or I'm working on the store with Paul, then we engage people in conversation and get to listen to their stories. But if I'm out doing field work or I'm out with the thermal scope or putting trail cameras out, then I keep it very low-key and unnoticed. It's better hidden in plain view. <laughs> it is frustrating, isn't it, that we are really inhibited by having to be sneaky and not being upfront about it and having to do it secretly. People who are not involved do not realise how challenging having to do it in this undercover way is, really. That's right. I think, I think that's absolutely true. And people don't realise how much hard work goes into it, especially on the Big Cat Open Group, say on Facebook. People are very critical of you not having a perfect photograph or asking why they haven't seen one or asserting that they don't actually exist. And they've no idea of the amount of effort the teams and researchers put into it. Yeah. And how the odds are stacked against us with all the other uh, things that we have to do about keeping it quiet and working around people and getting special permission from landowners and even in certain places, not even telling landowners what we're doing, but trying to do things responsibly. Yeah, there's, there's far more to it than people imagine. How does that influence you going forward? You've got that sort of determination now, have you, to try and make progress? I am still really motivated, even more so since I've had to take a few weeks off due to the injury. But I haven't been wasting time. I've look, been looking into the technicalities of the photography and the video and the trail cameras. And I've been doing a lot of research, work online and reading up articles and watching videos to see the latest developments everywhere. What are the lessons and tips you've taken recently then from all of this? I realised very quickly that you need to be very careful what equipment you choose to buy and it has to suit not only the terrain and the weather, but what you want from it. 
and the matter of resolution and contrast, I've now got a much better thermal scope. I suddenly realised that the contrast and the resolution are normally set at factory settings. And a factory setting is not the optimum amount. It's actually mid-range, so it's halfway there. So I got in touch with the company and asked them how I could change it. And they told me how to do it. And I've now got all my equipment set to optimum resolution and optimum contrast. So I should get the best quality video on the optimum resolution possible. Well, I've got a decent thermal camera. Maybe I should do that as well. Interesting, I got an email from Dave Dickinson, very good researcher down here in the southwest today, but he's got a thermal as well. And he was just pointing out that at the moment in mid-January, in southwest Britain at least, we've got very good conditions for thermal camera work because the landscape is cold. So things like background rocks and dump tyres and debris that warms up in the day normally is is not warm and it will not give you a heat signature at night when you're filming so only mammals and wildlife will show you a heat signature at the moment and we've got a lack of misty damp weather because it's just so clear and cold so it's very good visibility because as you all know and i think we perhaps said on episode 84 with don filming the puma that the um foraging puma and the wall walking cat which we think was a puma that the conditions when they get a bit misty and damp at night you know you really do lose the visibility clarity quality because the camera's just fighting that damp air so very good conditions in the cold still winter air at the moment for thermal camera work that's right the condensation is actually a nightmare when it's damp and misty i've tried all kinds of things from glasses wipes to even on the trail cameras, it's a problem. On, on the trail cameras, sometimes a drop of washing up liquid on the lens works, but you can't do that on a thermal. I've tried keeping it in my pocket till the last minute, but the condensation appears really quickly within seconds. But I have found that if you restart the thermal scope, the condensation clears. It does make it a very restrictive activity, though, doesn't it? I think the, the weather conditions for um, nighttime thermal work. Yeah, it does. Night vision binoculars are restricted in range as well. You've got to pay a lot of money for good infrared night vision equipment, haven't you? Yeah. There's another investigator, researcher nearby. And what motivated that person to get involved? Did he have sightings and activity that he experienced? He had a sighting and got in touch with me. I interviewed him about the sighting, and later he was invited to join the research team. He had lots of local knowledge and knew the area well and had personal experience and often was out walking, so he seemed the ideal candidate for the team. We work independently but keep in touch. We tend to get certain times where the sightings come in quickly, and other times when we go into a sort of lull. It could be weather-dependent or season-dependent, but I suppose it could also be dependent on the people who are out getting sightings and also the circulation of the cats. But, of course, if you're in a, in a remote area with uh, not very widely populated you're not going to have many reports in a sparsely populated area just by you know, definition. You need people for sightings, don't you? That's right, but people do tend to travel through. Oh, okay, yeah. But like you say, a lot of sightings go unreported. I'm absolutely certain. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see that at a rural event, don't you? You would have seen this. People say, oh, I never told anybody. I'm always struck by how many of those witnesses who come to my stand at rural shows just you know say well i never thought about telling anybody so that's my yardstick on it that's where i think you can prove that a lot of sightings go unreported that's right sometimes um going back 40 years and they've never mentioned it to anyone and as they walk up to the stall you can actually see on the face that they're dying to tell someone the story 
that we'll actually believe them. Why do you think your particular area has got cat activity? There's a very long history of different cats in different areas. I do think it could be linked to the Dangerous Animals Act with releases. But even dating back before that, certain military bases had big cats as mascots. And that's another possibility, that they were released um, when the war ended. Yeah. Presumably, the landscape conditions and the remoteness and the deer population all add up to something which is going to be favourable for for cats anyway, because you've got all of that, haven't you? As far as I know, it's just about the perfect environment for them. It's got everything, and we're absolutely overrun by deer. Rowan Red, they're quite a problem, actually, because there are so many and things like there are lots of rabbits There are areas with black rats, and they're all prey for the big cats. What about tan-coloured ones, puma-type ones? Have you heard of reports of those in your area? Yes, we seem to have one particular area where tan-coloured cats, cougar-type cats, get reported, and another area where all the reports are big black cats, We've also had a couple of sightings of possible links and a couple of reports where the, we put them down as hybrid cats where they didn't actually fit any particular species. The ears were wrong or the shape was wrong or the colouring was wrong and it just didn't add up to one particular species. I believe those type of reports of hybrid cats are being reported across Scotland as well. Something's definitely going on. They can't all be be a mistake by someone who's seen something and made a mistake on the description. If the sample was low, that could be the case. If you're getting quite a lot of those, I think something's going on. And if they're fairly consistent, these ones that sort of are oddball ones, that are misfit ones, are they the size that could predate a deer? Yes, most of them. And are they mostly black still? No, they come come in in various descriptions like stripes and shades of colours or the colour of the car doesn't tally with the description of the body. Yeah. The trouble is that I think we're not getting one particular type cat. One of the arguments for a, a hybrid that is successful and working and and is breeding on is that it would become its own type cat and so it would be consistently reported yet i think amongst these sort of oddball misfit cats there's such a range even though some of them are pretty big that they just seem to be various things rather than one thing and i think that's against a sort of a type cat forming although i'm very open to this actually it's giving us more questions than answers Although I think we should concentrate on the three that we know well because they are so emphatically, consistently reported of the black leopard, black panther type one, the tan coloured pumas and the the lynx type. We should concentrate on those because the majority of reports and descriptions and they're the ones we could try and make scientific progress on and understand more. But we shouldn't close our minds to these other ones. It's much more complicated than just the main lead three ones, I think. Yes. Looking back at what you've heard from doing the rural stand shows with Paul and what you've heard as an investigator, have you got a sort of standout report that somebody else has explained to you that you remember that you think, wow, that was a significant event? Actually, the ones I've heard have all been fairly similar to each other, or should I say have similarities I did hear one encounter where someone was actually outside a stable and got pushed aside by a cat that ran past her, trying to get out of the way. As it ran past her, it knocked her over. Not deliberately, just sort of brushing past at speed, you mean? Just brushing past at speed, yeah. That's a very close encounter. That was a big black one, was it? That was a big black one, yes. 
Was it trapped in the stables and trying to get out when it was disturbed, do you think? I believe it was. I, th- I think she disturbed it when she opened the door to the stables. Yeah. Genuinely, in Devon, heard that North Devon show a few years back had an exact replica of that. It was a farm worker and he opened a barn door and one had got trapped in somehow and he said it had obviously been ratting at the back of the barn and he said it panicked and took flight and raced to the door and just bounded past him and again in the speed and power of doing that it brushed past him and absolutely knocked him to the floor but he said there's no way it was trying to attack him. No. So isn't that interesting? Two very similar events. And it does show yeah. you that in cornered cats are taking flight rather than attacking somebody out of panic. That's right. It was probably panic-stricken thinking it would be cornered. Yeah. So that was in Scotland a few years ago, was it your one? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. And so your attitude, just to sort of finish off now, what's your attitude to these cats living wild? I think it's a wonderful thing to have them living amongst us. Most people are unaware, actually, how close they do live to civilization, And I really hope that in the future they will continue to thrive and be elusive. And what would you do, though, about misbehaving ones? I mean, people listening sometimes amongst the listeners who've had problems from them and we've had uh, podcast guests who've had problems from them what do you say on that front well i think it's pretty rare that they're misbehaving it's very unlikely that they will attack i do think that it should be some kind of recognition by the government so a compensation scheme can be set up for farmers who lose livestock but i don't think the animals should be killed or mistreated in some way. I don't think they should be put in a zoo either. Okay, you think they've justified that they're part of the ecosystem, a valued part of the ecosystem? I think they've probably existed in this country much longer than most people who are alive, so I think they've earned the right to continue to thrive. Very interesting to hear you in the sort of early stages of your investigation work it's going to be a big influence and factor of your of your life and lifestyle janet presumably in years to come is it hopefully yes i've decided to do the research smarter not harder and try and concentrate on the quality video and stills for the time being I think that's a good idea to put some emphasis, put some priorities on things, because there's so many things you can do, but you may as well prioritise on what you think you, you know, you've got the best chance and best opportunity to do, and then kit yourself out to do that. Yeah, and I've realised that I need to use the technical skills I already possess, and the equipment, of course. Very good, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say that we've not touched on that you're expecting to or any final thing you want to emphasise? Not really. I'd, I'd just like to say that for the people who don't believe in them, they do exist, but you will never see one for yourself sat behind a computer screen. Get out there and look, buy some basic equipment, learn how to track and read some good books and listen to Rick Minter's Big Cat Conversations, and there is so much to learn in there. Mind you, that won't guarantee you'll see a cat, because I don't expect to see another one. No, but it gives people the information on how much of a surprise it can be. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think it does help to just talk about it, doesn't it, together, and swap experiences. And just the joys of getting out, you know, particularly in dawn or dusk and places that are quiet, even though they can be quite close to towns and cities, actually. It's always worth as well, if you're out in the woods or the wilds, not only look around, but look up the trees, as well as looking for friends. And also to stand still and listen. I've actually been growled at twice recently with a very low guttural growl. The first time was with when I was out with my co-worker and we were collecting trail cams, and I heard two growls and he heard one. 
The same night, same evening? No, they were separate days a week apart. I heard the two growls. He heard one growl because he was walking back towards me with the trail camera. And the growl came from the woods, close to where a sighting had taken place. And the second time, I was about a mile away collecting my trail camera. As I'd taken the camera out of the woods, stepped out, I heard low guttural growling close by from another area of the woods. Do you think these were directed at you or they were communication ones? No, I think the first one was directed at my co-worker who had gone into the woods to collect the trail camera and was walking back. I think both were warnings. And the second time I heard the growl when I was on my own collecting my trail camera, I heard the growl three times and it was a very deep guttural growl and definitely a warning. How different was it from the very first one you heard on your property? Oh, very different. The first one was an angry roaring sound. The second one was a low, deep growl, but very guttural and echoey. The best I can describe it, but it was absolutely a warning. Beat it, go away, don't want you near me. That's exactly it. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't actually in the wood, wood when I heard it. I'd walk back onto the path. Do you think they were leopard-like noises? I think it was a leopard both the times I heard these two noises. Yeah. You sent a very good YouTube bit of material on vocalisations, more aggressive ones, which, funny enough, I sent Sue at the stables that we had recently in Essex. I sent it on to her because she's heard another warning growl recently at the stables since that podcast episode went out. So I sent her what you sent, which we put on the website, and Sue had said she'd heard something very similar to that recently, just about two weeks ago as we record this in mid-January. Yeah, so it was useful to her as reference. Yeah, the first one I heard from the decking was the angry roaring. But the second, the one I heard with the co-worker and the one I heard recently with the trail camera were both a low guttural growl, different from the first one. Could it have been the same individual? No, the tone was different. Okay. But geographically, was it close enough? Within about three miles. Okay. Yeah, well, fascinating to hear all this and that you've obviously got some significant activity going on locally and great that you're absolutely primed and ready to follow up and try and get evidence in all these different ways, but particularly the photographic. And let's hope we can hear from you, Janet, and your Scotland colleagues can hear from you with more progress in years to come. So do keep in touch and good luck. Great to hear from you. Thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. I will. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.